Hello, everyone. This is Denise Hummel, the CEO of Lead Inclusively. And for those of you who don't know Lead Inclusively, we are a technology-enabled diversity and inclusion firm. I'm very, very excited to bring diversity and inclusion into the digital age in order to support leaders in real time as best we can in their leadership journey. And I have with me Rebecca Tavares, who I've had the honor to know for many years. Rebecca has also graced us uh, with the uh, with the honor uh, and uh, of, uh, of being on our advisory board. And um, Rebecca, thank you so much for that, because of course your wisdom is very much respected by all of us. Thank you, Denise. Um, and so I'm just going to briefly introduce Rebecca and let her tell us about her illustrious career before we get into the topic of this podcast, which is gender parity. Now, we've had quite a few robust discussions about gender parity uh, generally, but Rebecca brings to the table an entirely more expansive viewpoint from a global point of view. And then that's what I think you're really gonna enjoy. So um, Rebecca is uh, formally the regional representative of the United Nations um, uh, Southeast Asia. And I'm sure she'll tell you a bit about that. And she is currently the UN Secretary General's um, director of Every Woman, uh, Every Child, and that's an extremely important uh, UN initiative. So, Rebecca, let me, uh, let me give it over to you to tell our viewership uh, a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Thank you, Denise. You know, I've been a gender advocate, I think, all of my life. Uh, I grew up with a single mother who was widowed, uh, you know, at a very early age, and she was a, a model for women's empowerment for me and went back to work and, uh, you know, continued to raise her girls in the same way. Uh, I started working on women's equality and gender empowerment in Latin America uh, back in the 80s and 90s and then moved through the Ford Foundation and, you know, NGO work, economic development work, and then to the United Nations. And so I was with actually UN Women in Latin America covering the southern cone of Latin America as a regional director and then the last five years was in South Asia as a regional representative uh, also covering Afghanistan and now working here at the headquarters of the UN on the Every Woman Every Child initiative which is an initiative also for women's empowerment and gender equality but also looking at the health issues that surround the discrimination against women and their marginalization throughout the world and really trying to understand how that affects their reproductive health and the quality of health care they receive for their children. So uh, this is a real exciting pleasure to be with you and I'm really happy to be part of Lead Inclusively. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I wanted to also tell our viewership, um, Rebecca, in, in terms of your role when you were with the UN in Southeast Asia, where were you living exactly? I didn't remember. Uh, in Delhi. In Delhi. Okay. okay. So, so obviously, um, you have a lot to tell us about um, about that part of the world. Um, as you know, the World Economic Forum is telling us that it's going to be 212 years uh, before we get to gender parity. I that that statistic uh, depresses me no end. I'm wondering what you think about that. Do you agree with that? Um, what, what what's your general thoughts about what they're anticipating? 
Well, I think that's a number that has been assigned based on the rate of change that we've seen so far. And unfortunately, the rate of change is not accelerating. Uh, we have seen really great outcomes. And if anyone wants to read Dan Pinker's book, uh, they will see that uh, in terms of life expectancy, maternal mortality, uh, all of the indicators of disease burden around the world have improved dramatically. Uh, so we should be optimistic about the future, but when it comes to discrimination based on gender, and particularly based on gender, when the women are belong to an excluded minority group or uh, disabled, uh, those statistics are not improving over time. So we need to dramatically accelerate the progress on women's rights and opportunities and health. And I'd like to say that, uh, you know, the women's movement ever since uh, the suffragist movement and then the third wave of feminism, which came up later in the 60s and 70s, we focused a lot on legal strategies, on policy change. And this is true around the world. Women's movements and women's organizations and scholars and academics as well have focused on the legal frameworks and the policies that would promote uh, equality, and discrimination based on gender. And we have found in so many parts of the world now that those kinds of laws and policies have been adopted, but they're not being enforced. And they're not being enforced because of parallel legal systems, traditional structures that uh, people at community level, but also even you know, uh, urban educated people oftentimes will recourse to a parallel legal system or a traditional uh, juridical system. Uh, and so those are the systems that oftentimes take precedent over the formal laws and policies. And then you also have the formal judiciary and the police that are not implementing or enforcing the laws. So we have come to the conclusion, the women's movement, I should say globally, including the UN, that we need to work much more at the level of culture and social norms. And this is the challenge that lies before us now. Mm -hmm. So uh, in that regard, do, do you mind opining a little bit or explaining to us a little bit um, about the difference between what is happening in terms of gender parity here in the US versus in other parts of the world, and if you like, in particular in Southeast Asia, where you have the most experience? Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of uh, perceptions are uh, in the northern, what we call the global north, the, the developed countries uh, in Europe and in the United States and lots of the Asian giants, that uh, gender equality is you know, leaps and bounds ahead of the rest of the world. And in many ways it is in terms of social norms and expectations and also policies regarding anti-discrimination in the workplace, sexual harassment. We see a lot of uh, a lot more recognition of the need for equality based on gender uh, and other forms of exclusion, such as disability status or sexual orientation, uh, race and ethnicity. So we do have policies in place that are actually being implemented in the northern hemisphere, let's say. Uh, but those policies are equally being implemented in around the world. And I would I just would want to point out that um, the challenges to implementation are similar in the North as they are in the global South. So we still have the social norms and expectations that plague the countries in the developed world in terms of uh, equal salary for equal work, uh, being able to be, you know, feel safe 
being uh, in public, public spaces are still not spaces where women feel safe and where power and patriarchy still dominate the relations between men and women, both socially and economically. So we have a lot of work to do in the global north. I would say though, in the global south, uh, there may be other uh, elements at play, uh, very deeply rooted traditions like female genital cutting, uh, the dowry or the bride price that we see in many parts of the world and much more entrenched gender stereotypes. So for example, in Afghanistan is the country where I most recently served. Uh, there's a saying, uh, which is that a woman only leaves her home twice. The first time is to get married and the second time is to be buried. Uh, women are not supposed to be in the public sphere and it can be considered a shame or a, an infringement on the honor of the men in her family. So in, in some parts of the world, we still have a situation where women's rights to education, women's rights to employment, even women's rights to be interact in the social sphere outside of the home are severely curtailed. Uh, and we're working with activists around the world and in these countries to try to battle against those social norms and stereotypes. And, you know, um, it's interesting because I, uh, I volunteer with Amnesty International and was just at a meeting uh, on Monday night here in San Diego. And one of the things we were writing about um, are these um, women, um, uh, 14 different women that we know of um, in Iran that are being um, held and um, and 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 sentenced uh, to imprisonment and 138 lashes for basically um, speaking out um, for women's rights. And so, um, you know, here in the U.S., we're fighting for economic freedom, and as you pointed out, in some other areas, we're we're literally fighting for our lives. So obviously, there's a a huge spectrum globally with how this issue. Um, um, has evolved, um, and 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 I was just wondering, in your opinion, what else uh, could we be doing, at least uh, at least in the United States, or as as a society, as a global society, what else could we be doing differently to accelerate this? Right. Well, one which we're doing already, but I think we really need to expand uh, exponentially the work that is with men to engage male partners. And I think with the Me Too movement, we've seen a lot of men uh, take part in the Me Too movement and understand that their role is to make it no longer permissible for the kinds of attitudes and behaviors that perpetuate sexual harassment and sexual abuse. So working with uh, male partners and raising our sons differently uh, and really, really engaging in the policy sphere around what kinds of incentives can be provided to men to participate more actively in the reproductive, what we call the reproductive activities at home, which means usually domestic work, childcare, and elder care. Right. So to the degree that the private sector can participate by making paternity leave mandatory, to providing uh, time off to men and ensuring that men use that time off for elder care, 
or for child care responsibilities or for going to the sports and uh, theater productions, you know, of their children, you know, really building it into the society. And some uh, countries have done that successfully and they see uh, families that are happier, children that are, that are happier and, you know, overall more stability in the society once the men are more engaged in the life of the family and children and supporting a woman who's going out into the workplace so that they share their tasks, their domestic chores and tasks and elder care yeah. more equally. So that's one. And I would also say that another thing that we can do much more effectively is use the media. And whether it's social media or whether it's mainstream media or all of the, you know, the proliferation of new uh, uh, platforms for sharing information and in fiction in particular, you know, portraying more women in roles of authority and, you know, being more in control. I've, I've been struck by the sort of spate of popularity of films recently that are about women fighting with each other. You know, it's almost like a blood sport now, you know, watch women fighting against one another, you know, or the, or the, all of the, story about all about Eve, you know, and the, the murder of women. There's just a lot of anti-women content out there in the media and, the, and, and in the public imagination. And we need to work against that uh, by really influencing and changing the terms of the game for women's participation and imagery and role in producing content in the media. Um, Rebecca, I'm so glad that you brought up men's role in, in accelerating gender parity. We, we, have, we actually have dubbed that champions of change and we have an entire program around that because the reality is that unless we engage men in this very important um, goal, uh, we, we can't accelerate it. I mean, that happens in every society, no matter what the, the gain is. If you want to accelerate it, you have to be, you have to embrace the, the, those who are in power, which happen to be white males. And there are so many of them out there that are so supportive of us. And we just have to give them a voice and, and uh, empower them to, you know, to be our champions. Um, so I, I really appreciated that. Um, as, as women, uh, let me ask you, what do you think we can do differently? Is there anything that we can do to accelerate this process? Oh, good question. <laughs> I think we all, uh, as women, uh, can embrace an identity that is not afraid to stand up, speak out, and be and 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 not be afraid that somehow that that will give the impression that we are you know strident or hysterical we need to be able to calmly coolly and collectively show our anger i'm not saying we shouldn't be uh expressing anger but expressing it in a way where we can be heard and uh speaking with confidence when we feel that we are being excluded or, or, you know, just interrupted. I mean, how many times have we all experienced being interrupted <laughs> and, or the male in the room repeating an idea that we just threw out there, but somehow when the male says it, people pay more attention to it. So these are things that we do have to call out. So number one is, you know, don't be afraid to call out and don't be afraid to ask for help if you need help, if you uh, are being abused. Recognize the different forms of abuse. Abuse doesn't take the form only of physical or verbal abuse even. It can be other kinds of uh, social, psychological control and manipulation. So 
you know, ask for help. If you feel disempowered, if you feel depressed and you're not sure why, you know, ask for help and try to understand what it is that's causing that disempowerment. Uh, and then we just have to keep supporting women in public office, supporting women in the corporate sphere, uh, trying to get more and more women engaged in community level participation and leadership roles, working, uh, you know, exercising our roles as consumers to make sure that we see a media that reflects us more accurately and that we see companies that reflect us more actively. I think those are all things in our everyday life, in addition to raising our children in a different way. And if we see uh, sexism in the school, or if we see that on the playground, in the playgroup, uh, addressing it, you know, just bringing it out, calling it out, uh, and raising the visibility you know, all the time. Uh, and, you know, it's, a, it's exhausting, and I know a lot of feminists would say it's not our role to have to con constantly be educating those around us. But in the end, uh, it's really important that we do that and that we bring in our male partners and champions and colleagues from the social, all the social movements to ensure that gender equality and all forms of diversity are taken very, very seriously. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I think, you know, not that the onus has to be on us, but in certain situations, if we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. I'll never forget. I came home from a from a business um, uh, from business travel when I was working as a senior leader for a very large organization, and I was complaining to to my my kids, my two boys who were at that time were about I'm going to say 14 and 16 about what I had experienced, which was best basically sort of a lewd inferences, I'll just say. And my boy said, well, what did you do in response? And I said, I just kind of laughed like ah, sort of thing. And one of my youngest said to me, well, mom, you're part of the problem. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, if you're just going to laugh it off and you don't bring it to his attention, you're giving him permission to do that. And then he, and then he said to me, and if you're not going to object for yourself, at least object for all the women that might be younger and less experienced than you who might be in a similar situation. Well, and what a wise young man. I was blown away uh, because he was absolutely right. And I guess what I was thinking is, oh, come on, I work with this person. I can't, you know, set up that kind of dynamic when the reality was that I could have said it in a very polite, mm -hmm. uh, but firm way to let him know what the boundary was. It's just, I know it's really small in the scheme of things and, and very small in terms of the enormity of what we've discussed on this podcast, um, not only uh, obviously in the United States, but in areas of the world where women are fighting for their lives. But nevertheless, I think it's worth pointing out that each of us in our own way can do something very small, very unique that can send a ripple in the water. So um, where I know that, you know, you have, gosh, done your part in a big way throughout your entire career and here at Lead Inclusively, as you know, um, thanks to your support and the support of our clients and other advisors, we are really trying to systematically move the needle. We're not interested in sort of these um, you know, very quick shotgun approaches, you know, at ERG here and Women's Day, you know, Women's Professional Day there, we're interested in systematic assessments, um, education that matters, moving our leaders from unconscious bias awareness to inclusive behaviors. And 
teaching and helping um, enterprise to sustain a, a gradual transition and transformation to uh, inclusion in all of our institutions. So I just want to say um, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your wisdom with us, and for all the support um, of, of our goals and endeavors as well. Thank you, Denise. It's really a pleasure and a privilege to be part of Lead Inclusively, and I look forward to working with you in the future. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye.